John chapter 3. Hope you have a text in front of you in a book or electronically, but there's nothing so great a privilege as to hold the Word of God in our own hands and be able to read it as it's read to us. And so if you're able to do that, I encourage you both to read with me and to keep the text open as we look at it this morning. We're in John chapter 3, reading the first 21 verses. We considered the first half of that last time. And so our, our text, sermon text, and concentration this morning is upon John 3, 11 to 21. But let us begin at John 3, verse 1, the word of God. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven. But he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. Let's confess our need of God's help as we bow in prayer. Oh, Lord, our God, we, with all your people, enter into spiritual battle. As Christ 
by the preaching of his word sows seeds, Satan seeks to swoop in and steal them away. We pray that you'd visit us with the protection and grace of your spirit and that you would give us hearts and minds that by faith we might be able to contemplate the things that you tell us, wonderful things, heavenly things. God, open our hearts so we might know you and see you and trust in the Savior you've given to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Hear us, God. Amen. Well, Congregation of Christ, this morning our Lord Jesus reveals to us the secret counsel of God concerning our salvation, and he reveals to us the heart of God, the heart of God. Not just the, the what God has done, but the why God has done it. I don't know if you enjoy listening to interviews, but of course if you do, there is uh, an infinite amount of them, it seems, on the internet these days. You can watch interviews of soldiers who were in Afghanistan at the time of our military withdrawal, You can watch interviews of homeless people. You can watch interviews of millionaires and how they made their millions. You can can watch interviews probably of anything you want. But you know, a good interviewer asks not just the what question. What happened? What did you do? But they ask the why question. Why did you do it? What were you thinking? What did you feel? On vacation, I began a biography of... uh, the famous 18th century evangelist, George Whitfield. Maybe you remember him, most famous preacher, certainly of the 18th century, and uh, well-known for his open-air preaching to thousands of people, huge crowds, his preaching both in England and America, giving way to a kind of revival, the beginning of the Great Awakening, and so forth. But I picked up this biography written by Arnold Delamore in 1970, actually, but I was not only encouraged to read it, I was intrigued by the dust jacket on this book because it explained that this Arnold Delamore in his early years had become troubled that so little detail was given of George Whitfield's life and there are huge segments of Whitfield's life that we apparently knew nothing about, nobody wrote about, and so he dove into research and a study and the dust jacket said that in doing that he discovered material heretofore unknown, not only letters of George Whitfield, but his diary. Well, that's a tease, isn't it, to read the book? That now, the, after, after a couple hundred years now, a biography is being written by a man who found his diary. Well, that's promising, right? I mean, if you interview someone, you don't know if they'll tell you the truth when you ask them the why question, why did you do it? But if you have someone's diary, you might expect of any place where you might find out what they really thought, what they really believed, their real motivation might be in that diary. As we come to John chapter 3 this morning, ask yourself the question, what if, what if we had God's diary? What if we had the diary from heaven of the living God? I can tell you we couldn't read it or understand it. We have something far better. We have the Son of God sent from heaven to proclaim to us the heart of the Father. Jesus says to Nicodemus that you can't enter the kingdom unless you're born again. And Nicodemus says, how can this be? And and Jesus says, verse 12, if I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And I think what Christ is saying is that I've just spoken to you about about things that take place in the sphere of humanity on earth, the new heart, being born again. 
But Nicodemus, if you can't accept that, if you can't believe that, how will you believe when I proclaim to you that the living God has sent his son into the world to die for sinners because the Father loved the world? Brothers and sisters, if we have something better than the diary of God, if, if we have the Son of God who opens to us a window to see into the heart of our God, then we should be forever changed. Once in a while in this world, you, you get a window into a world behind the world you see, into a dimension of something beyond what you see. We live in a world where people are just staring at the earth, looking at creation, but we as believers get a window into heaven. So this morning rejoice as Christ proclaims to you God's spectacular plan of salvation that comes from the heart of God. I ask your attention for three points this morning. First of all, let's consider the the revelation or the revealing of God's plan. And then let's ask the why question and look at the heart, the heart of God's plan. And then finally, let's consider the response or the response is to God's plan of salvation. Well, Christ begins to tell us heavenly things beyond the range of our human experience and human knowledge. Uh, Majestic things, transcendent things, things that you and I would have never thought, never conceived of unless they had been revealed or shown to us, right? Who would have ever thought that God would send his son? If you could think back into eternity... Among the council of the triune God had Father, Son, and Spirit. And if there had been there in eternity angels, which there were not, but if there had been there angels as the triune God had assembled, as it were, to ask the question, what shall we do with humanity after they rebel against us? Can you imagine an angel saying to the Father, why don't you send your son down to die for them? Of course not. Or if the father would reply to such an angel, well, you know, thanks for the thought, but a human must die for humans. Only man can die for man's sins. Can you imagine an angel saying to God, well, why don't you have your son become a man? Of course not. The plan of God's salvation is beyond all human comprehension. Nicodemus cannot accept the things of the earth. And by saying that Christ is not belittling the new birth, it's essential. If you sit in church your whole life long, but you are not born again, you are not regenerate, you do not have life from above, then you will not live. You will not enter the kingdom. Life in the soul is essential. But Christ says, if you, if you Nicodemus, can't accept that, How will you accept what I would declare to you now, the heavenly things? Jesus says in verse 13, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man. There is no man, Jesus is saying, who who can climb his way into heaven, who can pull back the curtain and who can see into the counsel of God and know the heart of God. There's no human powers of investigation or evaluation or research that can get to this. Now, Jesus here is is humbling Nicodemus. Remember, Nicodemus, as we saw last time, he comes to Jesus in the night, and he comes to Jesus saying in verse 2, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who comes from God. 
We, me, one of the teachers of Israel, one of the Pharisees, we, my people, our group, we know, we've assessed, we've evaluated. Jesus responds again to that now in verse 11 when he says, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen. Whatever Jesus is including in the word we, whether he's just talking about himself or about himself and John the Baptist or himself and the Old Testament prophets or himself and the Holy Spirit, whatever he means by we, it seems that he's setting his we over against the we of Nicodemus. Nicodemus says, we know, we Pharisees. Jesus says, we know. And Jesus says, we have seen. Nicodemus's we know is the knowledge of human observation and evaluation, but the Lord Jesus speaks of a greater knowledge we know because we have seen. We've seen. What a wonder our Lord is making clear here that he testifies to something not that man has come up with, but what he himself has witnessed. He is the Son of God, the eternal Son of God. In him the fullness of God has come upon the earth. The one who speaks here is the one who's united to God from all eternity, the eternal Son of God. And he sat in the council of the triune Godhead as they determined the plan for the world and what would be done with the humanity in rebellion against God. Jesus Christ has not merely read the diary of the Father. This is the Son who has lived in face-to-face fellowship, who knows the heart and the motivation of his Father, who has listened who is united to him. He alone can tell us what went on behind closed doors. No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, the Son of God. Christ, in those words, is slamming the door shut against us, against Nicodemus, against all of his kind, against us. No mortal man can ascend to heaven to observe God's throne and to hear God's secret counsel We have no ability to uncover God's mind or know the plan of salvation, and therefore we have no possibility of being saved. First Corinthians three, verse eighteen says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Now, our problem by nature, brothers and sisters, is our pride and our haughtiness. We think that we know, right? We have this, we have this sense that we are wise, right? We all do by nature. To count ourselves fool and our, fools and our wisdom as foolishness is, is the thing that we are most reluctant to do. Jesus says, Nicodemus, you're you're a teacher of Israel? And you don't know these things? James would warn, James chapter 3, My brother, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. It's a humbling warning for preachers. Ministers of the gospel may not come to the pulpit and assume they have some innate knowledge of God. Whatever we know of God in truth has been revealed through Christ. And so, remember, Paul tells Timothy to be a a good workman. 
studying that word, rightly dividing the word of God. And so we ought to pray, right? Certainly appreciate your prayers, and all ministers need the prayers that, that they will have fidelity to the word. They'll come not with their own ideas of God, but, but with the thoughts of God from God's word in Christ. But, but this is also a calling, isn't it, for parents and for Sunday school teachers and for all who would stand to speak for the Lord? That we must seriously plead to God and say, God, I myself know nothing. Must be students of the word. We can be rather presumptuous and haughty sometimes, right? Trusting in our own powers of assessment. If there's one thing that seems to characterize our age, it's the phrase, well, I just believe. Well, I just believe this about God. I just believe that about God. To which I think God the Holy Spirit would say, what does that have to do with anything? No one can ascend into heaven. No one just looked up and decided this is what is true. The only truth we have is what comes down from above in Jesus Christ. And so Christ casts us to the ground here. And yet no sooner does Christ cast us to the ground and say, you can't know... Then he proclaims himself that he has come down from God to make God known to us. He has come down to bring us the blessings of heaven. He who is the counselor of the Father, he who lives in intimate union with the Father, he who belongs to the counsel of the Godhead, has come to give us access to the secret recesses of the, the counsel room and to hear, as it were, the discussion What's to be done and why it's to be done? When God made his plan of salvation, when he decreed to send his son into the world, when he from all eternity purposed this, was there anyone there to hear it? There was. The son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. When I was in college, I learned the difference between primary sources and secondary sources and I wrote a paper once on the theologian Cornelius Van Til to which the professor replied in red ink that it was a decent paper but looking at my biography and footnotes I should have read a lot more of the primary source Cornelius Van Til rather than the secondary sources people writing about Van Til well we have the primary source don't we the word of Christ He speaks of what he knows, testifies to what he has seen. This is our Lord Jesus. Now, as we move this morning to consider, secondly, the heart of God's plan of salvation, we should remember this, that no matter how amazing, how spectacular, how almost beyond comprehension, what we're about to hear sounds, that what we're about to hear has come not as the hypothesis of man, has not come by some research of a biographer, by some calculations of a physicist. What we're about to hear is the witness of the Son of God concerning his Father. So let's look at the heart of God's plan, verses 14 and following where we come to the very center of God's wonderful plan of redemption, that he would send his Son Now, what God 
has purpose to do and what he's doing now in the New Testament is not brand new because Jesus tells us actually in the Old Testament, God gave some types and some pointers to show the way as to what was coming. And one of those, Jesus says, is the one from Numbers chapter 21. And boys and girls, maybe you remember the story about snakes found in Numbers chapter 21 where the Israelites out in the wilderness are grumbling and complaining against God. Why did you bring us out here to die, to kill us? And God sends among the camp of the Israelites, some of you boys and girls have gone camping recently, but what if you found a snake in your tent? What if you found hundreds of snakes outside around your tent? What if someone got bit by the snake and their, their leg began to swell up and they, pretty soon they couldn't breathe and they started dying and people started dying all around you? That's what happens. And they cry out, we've sinned. And they say to Moses, plead to God for us. And Moses prays to God. And we read, then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, make a poisonous snake, and set it on a pole. And it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, carved, sculpted bronze into a snake. He put it up on a pole. And so it was, if a snake bit anyone, when that person looked to the bronze serpent, he would live. People who deserve death, people who are perishing in their sin, people who have nothing by which to save themselves, suddenly receive a remedy by God. The remedy is lifted up on a pole, and the promise is given, look and live. And Christ says, that's what is to happen. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. In the wilderness, people were saved from a physical death. But Christ has come to be lifted up on the cross, that people might be saved from an eternal death, from perishing. So God gives his son for that purpose. But why? Why? What's the answer to the why question? Well, in John 3.16, perhaps the best-known verse in the whole Bible, Jesus unveils to us the answer. And it's very important. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Does it matter if you know why God gave his son? Or is it only important that you know that God gave his son? To be saved, do you have to know why God gave his son, or do you only have to know that God gave his son? The 16th century reformer, John Calvin, in his commentary says that our minds cannot find peace until we arrive at the unmerited love of God. Our minds can't find peace until we come to the unmerited, undeserved, unearned love of God, until we rest there. Calvin writes, as the whole matter of our salvation must not be sought anywhere else than in Christ, so we must see from where Christ came to us and why he was offered to be our Savior. 
Faith in Christ brings life to all, and Christ brought life because the Heavenly Father loves the human race and wishes that they should not perish. If we don't know the love of God, then we tend to think that that God sent his son and God saves because of what I do, because I'm a good person, because I'm trying to be a good person, or because I'm really sorry about the wrong things I did. But the gospel claims that God saves purely of God's mercy. That's the entire why. Why did God send his son? And the answer to the gospel is because God loved the world. And if you say, I want to get behind that, what's behind the love? Then you go to Ephesians and it says, because God willed to love the world. Apart from God's gracious and undeserved gift, we were all destined to perish in unending hell. We offended God. We were offensive to God. We couldn't cover our past sins, and we couldn't change our character in the present. We were guilty. We were filthy. We were offensive to God. We were unable to change that in any way to restore ourselves or make ourselves attractive to God. We were his enemies. God didn't send his son because we were lovely. He was not attracted by our beauty. God perceived nothing in us that tugged at his heart and said, you know, they're kind of cute and cuddly creatures. Because of God's love, he sent his son that we would not perish. And so Jesus ascribes the glory of our salvation entirely to the love of God. The love of God is revealed to us in its wonder and intensity in that God gave his son, his son, his only son, his only begotten son, his dearly loved son. Again, the Old Testament has a a bit of a precursor to this in, in Genesis chapter 22 when Abraham now having Isaac here, this teenager perhaps, I guess, this son of the promise, this one son Abraham and Sarah had waited for so long, this one son in whom all the blessings would come, this one son that Abraham loved. God comes to Abraham one day and says, Abraham, Abraham says, here I am. And God says, take your son. I'll read it to you directly. Then he said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. Your son, your only son, the son whom you love. Abraham was being tested. God doesn't like child sacrifice, of course. He detests it. But Abraham was being tested, and he was being asked to offer his son up to the creator God. The creature was being asked to give his son to the creator. The, the sinful man was being asked to deliver his son to the holy one. What we have in John chapter 3, of course, is something far greater. Because now the creator is giving his son to the creature. And the holy one is giving his son to the sinful What a wonder. 
that God should give his son for the world. World, that word can be used different ways, different times, but John often uses the word world to signify not the size of the cosmos, but the sinfulness of it. The wonder of God's love is not that he loves a world that's so big, but that he loves a world that is so bad, so hostile to him, so opposite of everything God is, so repulsive to him. He gives his son, his son, his only son, the son whom he loves, the son in whom he delights from all eternity. He gives his son for the likes of us. To quote Calvin again, the word only begotten is emphatic to magnify the fervor of the love of God towards us. Listen to this. For for as men are not easily convinced that God loves them. Isn't that true? For as men are not easily convinced that God loves them, in order to remove all doubt... He expressly states that we are so very dear to God that on our account he did not even spare his only begotten son. We wrestle, don't we, to believe God loves us. We wrestle to believe that the Almighty Father in heaven truly loves us. And the Son of God has come from the very heart of God to announce Why did God send me to die on a cross for your sins? But because he loves you. Calvin adds, since therefore God has most abundantly testified of his love towards us, whoever is not satisfied with this testimony and still remains in doubt offers a high insult to Christ as if Christ had been an ordinary man given up at random to death. To doubt God's love is to insult the Father, but to insult the Son, right? I mean, if we, after God gives his Son, we say, well, I'm still not sure if you love me, then we're suggesting that This son of God isn't very precious to God. He he doesn't amount to much. No, it's no ordinary one. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten, his one and only son. When we were his enemies. I've seen bumper stickers in Oregon of advertising, you know, uh, rescuing animals kind of thing. People who are into that or who have adopted animals from rescue shelters or dogs or cats or maybe a horse up to its thighs and muck and mire. And we know that there are many people who have gone off in works of mercy to care for those in refugee camps or to serve as doctors and nurses in poor lands. But none of this is equal to what the Almighty God has done. For a people who despised him and betrayed him, that he gave his son. He sent his son from heaven not simply to come and negotiate peace between heaven and earth. Not simply authorized to, to make that deal. But he sent his son to die as the propitiatory sacrifice. To bleed in the place of sinners. To suffer not just the wrath of man, but 
but the wrath of God against us that we fully deserved. And God gave his son to the altar of sacrifice not to do as he did for Abraham and Isaac to, to, to stay the knife at the last moment. But God gave his son to go through the whole thing, the whole ordeal, the shame, the nakedness, the humiliation, the spitting, the beating, the mockery, and beyond that, everything that our human eyes could not see, the very curse of the covenant falling upon him, the utter God-forsakenness piercing him through. Could you ever believe that the creator of heaven and earth would give his only son to suffer that for you unless the Son of God had come from heaven to tell you. God wished to love the world again, establish his kingdom of peace, gain a people for himself. He did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. That would be the utterly reasonable thing to do, wouldn't it? To send his Son to earth to deal with them. Jesus tells us God did not send us out of the world to condemn the world. Condemnation is the consequence for all who will not receive the Savior. But God sent his Son into the world that the world through him might be saved. Did Nicodemus and many of the Pharisees think it was all about the Jews? We Israelites are pretty good people. We Pharisees are pretty holy. I can't wait for the Messiah to come and deal with these Romans and wipe out these Gentiles. Christ says the creator looks upon his world. He sends a son for people of every nation, tribe, and tongue. And so the gospel is preached today. Christ is being lifted up, isn't he? He was lifted up on the cross and lifted up into heaven. Is lifted up in the preaching. And for any who complain against the church and say, you guys proclaim there's only one way to God. That's so, that's so narrow-minded. We would ask, what other way could there be? Show me another who can bear the wrath of God in the place of sinners. And if there are other ways, would the Father have ever sent his Son for this? No, this is the way. Glorious way. What a wonderful message. The people of God, in reading this, not only should our hearts be enraptured by this portrayal of the love of God, but of course we should be compelled to share this. Christ has delivered to his church not some, some, some private good news for you select few. He's, he's delivered to his church the revelation of who God is and what he has done and why he's done it. We have a glorious God to declare to the world. We don't have to figure out who's elect and not elect to declare the message that God in heaven is a God of great love who so loved a sinful race that he gave his son to perish in our place so we don't have to perish everlastingly. This is good news to be announced. It's a glorious good news. We get so excited to talk about many things in life. I've been embarrassed many times by my excitement to talk about something other than the gospel and my failure to talk with excitement to people about the gospel. And how can this be? This is the most wonderful news in all the world. 
to declare to a perishing world, a hopeless world, teenagers who are killing themselves, many who are hiding out in substance abuse, people all over, hopeless. And we know the secrets of heaven, the plan of salvation, the heart of God. Well, there must be a response. Let's look at that last here, the response to God's plan. Jesus said that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And then he says, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Well, the contrast is, is quite stark, isn't it? You either perish or you have everlasting life and there's nothing in between. You either perish, you spend eternity in hell beneath the just judgment of God, or you have eternal life. You bask in God's favor and the sunshine of his smile forever. Those are the only two options. We are so prone to live by what is seen instead of what is unseen, and so we're prone to measure our lives and the happiness of our lives by the question, am I healthy? Do I have friends? Uh, Do I have money? Do I have a good job? Do I have a nice car? And yet after 70 years or 80 years or 90 years or 100 years, none of that will matter. But the things that are unseen, where do I stand with God? Am I innocent or guilty in his eyes? Am I accepted by him or am I condemned by him? And that comes down to my my relationship to Jesus Christ. Do I believe on him or do I reject him? It's through faith, Christ says, that you may take hold of me. It's by believing on me, accepting my testimony, confessing your sins and, and taking refuge in me, entrusting yourself to me, resting on me, that you may have this everlasting life. As the serpent was lifted up, so Christ was lifted up. As God said, look and live, so God says, look and live. Were there Israelites in their tents who were bitten by snakes and who would still not look up to the serpent? Oh, there's many today who are perishing in their sin and will not look to the Son of God. Now, why? Why? I mentioned that if an interviewer asks the why question, he's not always guaranteed to get a true answer, right? If he asks the what question, what did you do? He might get the truth. But if he says, now why did you do it? Would the interviewee tell the truth? If you ask the world today, If you ask an unbeliever today, why aren't you a Christian? Why aren't you a Christian? Have you ever had anyone answer you with the explanation that Jesus Christ gives? 
in verses 19 and 20. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. Have you ever had anybody say to you, I'm not a Christian because I love darkness and I don't want to be exposed? Jesus, as we saw earlier in John, it's not that he only knows the heart of God, but we read earlier in John that he knows the heart of man. He knows what is in a man. Well, it's a terribly sad and disturbing portrait of humanity that Jesus paints here. In some ways, it's, it's comparable to turning on the lights in a roach-infested kitchen. They scurry. They don't want to be exposed and squashed. And by nature, we love the darkness. It's not just that we are dark, right? I mean, it's one thing for, for somebody to be able to say, you know, I, I'm just in darkness. I just didn't know there was a God. I just didn't know. Jesus says, no. It's not that you just didn't know. You love the darkness. You love the darkness. That's a moral evaluation. But how great is the love of God that he gives new birth. And that those who once loved darkness are turned to the light. Born again, born from above, drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ by that compelling, magnetic love of God, by the gift of a new heart. Verse 21, but he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. Isn't it an amazing thing that believers come to church and they pray, search me, O God. Test me, O God. See if there's any wicked way in me. I want to know my sin. I want to repent of my sin. I want to confess my sin. I want to turn from my heart. Bring me into your light. Why do believers do that? Have you asked the why question? Why do believers do that? There's only one reason. Because they trust the love of the Father. They trust the love of the Father. They trust that faithful are the wounds of a friend. They they trust the surgeon that the knife is put in not to destroy but to heal. Does it matter if we know the why? Does it matter that we know why God sent his son? Without knowing the why, you can't trust him. Without knowing the why, you don't know what his intentions are. But it's as we know the why that we press towards the light, towards our God and Father through Christ. As you look at your life this morning, what's it characterized by? A fleeing from the light or a running towards the light. Do you read the scriptures with the prayer that God would search you and show you you, that he would convict you? Or is your life filled up with trying to be too busy in your work and too busy in your recreation to listen, to hear, to be convicted? 
we haven't come to the Lord Jesus Christ, then what are we waiting for? What would we be waiting for? What, what more could God do for us? What greater testimony to his love and his willingness to receive sinners could God give us than the gift of his only begotten son? Do we feel we need to bear our guilt a little longer? Are we doing penance and we think that by carrying this burden of my guilt, I'm helping to pay my way a little further, then I'll be ready to come to Christ? Are we thinking I need to get cleaned up first and then I'll be presentable to him? No. God loved the vile world. And we can't get ourselves cleaned up anyway. Come. Come and bask in that love. Receive the Savior. For the Church of Christ who believes on Jesus Christ, isn't there more room for us to come to that light and to bask in that love of God? This past week, I jumped up at one point to go do something that I was obligated to do. And even as I was getting up, I thought, this is really pathetic. I am only getting up to do this because I will be embarrassed if I don't do it. I'll be embarrassed as a minister of the gospel if I don't do what I'm supposed to do. And I thought, wouldn't it be better to be motivated by the love of God that has loved me? Are you basking in the love of God for you, that you do your works not out of shame or embarrassment because you love him who loved you? That you move forward not paralyzed by what other people think of you or whether you can do enough to make God happy, but you are energized in service by the love of God for you. God has loved you in Christ. You know what he's done. He sent his son. And when Satan comes with his lies, you remember why God did it. Because he loves you. He loves you in Christ. He loves you from eternity. He loves you to eternity. Believe on Jesus. Accept his testimony. And entrust your life to him. Amen. Oh Lord our God, we are deeply humbled. What can we say to such extraordinary love? We give you thanks. We pray for faith to take hold on Christ. Pray for a lost world and for the mission of your church. We pray, Lord, that you lead us to depend more deeply, to rest more thoroughly in your love for us. Through the only Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.